Robert, and I was a church planter apprentice all the way back in 2015 here at the Hallows, back when had the Hallows was meeting at Fremont Baptist. So it's been a little bit since I've been with you guys, but I'm looking forward to preaching with you this morning and uh, looking actually at a passage in Colossians. We're going to be looking at a passage in Colossians 1. So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open them and open with me to Colossians chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. As Andrew was preparing for his sabbatical, he asked me if I'd be available to preach with the Hallows. And I was honored by the request. I, I love this church. I love Andrew and Kim. I pray for this church. I, I pray that Andrew and Kim have a, a wonderful time on sabbatical, that they find rest and clarity and enjoyment. And this morning, I'd like to consider what does the Christian faith have to say about hope love and faith, and, and what is the dynamic between those, those elements? And more specifically, I want to look at what is the dynamic, what is the, the, the relationship between hope and love? And as I was reading Colossians 1, something struck me in Colossians 1 that, that's still sitting with me. I'm still chewing on it. I, I don't know if I quite yet understand it, but I want to share what I think Paul means uh, to encourage you. And I think there's some, some gospel truth and, and promises that we can cling to in Colossians 1 that I'd like to encourage you with. You guys cool with that? All right. Let's look at our passage, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of the truth, the gospel, that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it has among you since you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you're filled with the knowledge of his will and all the wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Where would you say that love originates from? What is the origin of love? I did a Google search this week, and I didn't find answers that, that really were helpful to me. I found some scientific articles that talk about dopamine and serotonin, and these create attraction, and testosterone and estrogen, and oxytocin, if I'm even saying that right. You look at movies, and I have three girls. Addison is, is almost six, Avery is four, and Anna is one. And of course, Disney is a thing in my household and Disney princesses. And it seems like in Disney, love just happens to you. 
Like you just, you fall into it. You're kind of like walking down the street and you trip into a hole and, oh gosh, I fell into a love hole. <laughs> that just sounds a little weird to say that. But you, it's just something that happens to you. Like you, you almost have no control and experience over it. We fall into it, but then we can fall out of it. Like I said, I was recently studying Colossians, Paul's letter to the, the church in Colossae, and it was, there was a striking thought, a thought-provoking uh, comment that Paul makes here about the relationship between hope and love. And I'd like to consider this morning the need that we have for hope, what, what the fruit of hope is, and then what's at the root of hope. So those are kind of a, the three headings we'll be looking at this morning as we consider consider the passage. Hope is a powerful force in our lives. If you read uh, stories on how they used to imprison or torture prisoners in war, one of the greatest tactics to destroy, a prisoner destroy an enemy is to, to remove all hope. There's scientists, uh, philosophers, psychiatrists will tell you, you remove hope, there's almost not a will to live. Depression, despair sets in. To be without hope is to be in despair, to be depressed. One of my good friends is a licensed psychotherapist who owns and operates Buren Counseling, Christian. And Christian tells me and shared with me how the more and more he's seen in society how people have no hope. The increase of depression, anxiety, problems, mental health decreases. We are in need of hope. Social unrest, our lives have been turned upside down from the pandemic. There's now inflation that's out of control, increased depression and anxiety. And we see, he, he's, he shared with me, failure in relational hopes. If you have a failure in relational hope, your, your failure to, to be well thought of by others, to, to be approved by others, to be accepted by others leads to depression. You have a failure in personal hopes, success and family life and achievements you have failure in physical hopes and in beauty or in health. You have failure in emotional hope, help. You hope to feel good continually and that's not a reality of life, so that makes you sad and that creates a vicious cycle of depression. And this is, depression is oftentimes where we put our hope in something that, that fails us. We don't experience the reality of things that we, that we were seeking when we were going after it. We, we didn't get what we wanted. We didn't attain what we wanted. And this leads to feelings of sadness, despair, and depression. And Paul is writing to these Colossians that he's encouraged by the hope that they have in the gospel. And that's a word I think we also need this morning. We need the hope of the gospel, amen? So we look at our society and our culture, we need the hope of the gospel. We are in need of hope. And Paul tells us what is the fruit of hope here. And to give a little context, Paul wrote Colossians probably after a guy named Epaphras, a a guy who might have heard the gospel from Paul's ministry, he went to his hometown, Colossae, and he started sharing the gospel. And a church was formed. And then Epaphras comes back to Paul and he starts sharing of, of some of the pressures, some of the, the teaching that was, uh, maybe they were being tempted to believe that they were coming across in the church. And Paul writes this letter to the Colossians to encourage them, to strengthen their faith, to give them confidence in Christ. And we can infer from the letter what kind of teaching, what, what kind of teaching the false teachers are trying to influence into the church, but Paul essentially writes Colossians to say, focus on Jesus. Christ is sufficient and he is central. And if you have Christ, you have everything you need. And growing as a Christian looks like growing in the gospel, growing in your faith in Christ, growing in your trust in Christ, growing in your knowledge of God in Christ, growing in holiness, looking like Christ. It looks like having a distinct household. 
that is marked by Christ. It looks like the gospel affecting ways that was countercultural and and attractive, reflecting the very gospel itself. So we see Paul opens the letter like he does in very many other letters with who the letter is written to, who it's from, and, and a greeting. And we might start an email this way, right? We're writing an email. We start with an opening address to whom it's concerned, right? Maybe that's a more formal way of saying it. Maybe a more modern way of saying it. Hey. <laughs> Paul writes, look what he says there. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is how Paul welcomes, he opens, he greets the letter. And Paul cares for this church and the brothers and sisters that he's writing to. When we think about grace and peace, it's not, I don't think, a kind of just trite saying, a, a kind of peace like, peace, my dudes. This is peace and grace from God. And I think Paul wants us, the readers, to understand that this letter is written in grace. It's to advance grace. It's to cultivate grace. It's that we can be encouraged and find comfort and courage in the grace that he's written. This letter is a letter of grace. And he begins then right after by expressing thanks to God. He's communicating what he's been praying about for the Colossians. Look with me at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. So when Paul is praying for the Colossians, when the Colossians are brought to his mind, he thanks God. His prayers for them are, are marked by thanksgiving towards God. He's thinking about the Colossians and he's immediately led to give thanks to God. Because he's heard of, number one, he says their faith in Christ Jesus. And secondly, their love for all the saints. Now, what does Paul mean when he said he's heard of their faith or he's heard of their love? I think it means that, that their love and their faith is, is a public. It's, it's made evidence. It's, this love is it's witnessed to in the lives of, of the Colossians. It's not as though Paul's envisioning, he's thanking, the Colo- he's thanking God for the, the love the Colossians have because the Colossians just sit around in a circle and write love songs about each other. It's not just they just talk about the love, or they, they feel the love. In our culture, we talk about love all the time, don't we? We talk about the feeling of love all the time. We hear Rihanna singing songs about finding love in a hopeless place. It's like she finds it, just out there somehow, and she finds it. We hear songs from, maybe I like some older music, any Stevie Wonder fans in the room? Yes. Stevie Wonder sings about this kind of wishful thinking, right? He says, I believe this time when I fall in love, it'll be forever. <laughs> like, forget those other times. This time, it'll be forever. Whitney Houston sings about always loving the person that she can't be with. How sad is that? If I could stay, I would only be in your way, so I'll go. But I know, I think of you every step of the way. And we all want to burst out into song right here because we know what comes next. Beyonce talks about love making her go crazy. What is love? Well, in the Christian faith, love is described not simply a feeling, but, but it, it does something. It leads to an action. When many people think about love, it's, it's kind of talked about a, a feeling of consumed, a desire, crazy in love. It's, it's often thought about as being more feelings. It's a mysterious feeling. It's an elusive feeling. It comes and goes. It waxes and wanes. You fall into it. You fall out of it. The heart wants what it wants. Is love this just uncontrollable desire? The Christian faith describes love as it's demonstrated, it's received, it's responded to, it affects actions, it affects 
posture, it affects tone of voice. It, it's displayed in physical acts of service. Jesus talks about loving others, and he defines it as doing good to them. Jesus describes that there's no greater love than laying down your life for your friends. Jesus describes love as self-sacrificial, other-oriented. Love involves actions and words and communicating what's true of others and what Christ has said. Love is demonstrated in relationship. The scriptures talk about love as being patient and kind. It doesn't envy, it's not rude, it's not arrogant, it's not selfish, it's not irritable, it's not resentful, it's not envious. This is love. And notice what Paul doesn't say. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have for all the saints, because we've heard you have such amazing church services. Worship, wow, amazing. Your pastor has a trending podcast. (laughs) Oh, man, you guys are killing it. Your giving has gone up. You've, you've baptized the record numbers of people this year. I've heard about you guys serving coffee. And it's not cheap coffee. You really go all out. Well done, guys. He says, no, I, I'm thanking God because of the love you have. The love you have for one another. And what is the basis of this love? Look at verse 5. Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. It seems like Paul is saying that the basis of their faith and their love is is hope. The fruit of hope is love. In other words, the hope laid up in heaven for them, the hope that they heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel. In other words, I think the gospel is the, the basis, the motivation for faith and love. The love that Paul is talking about here for the saints comes from the confident hope that they have in God the hope that they have received and that's been reserved for them in heaven, the faith and love spring forth from this hope. N.T. Wright says it like this in his commentary on Colossians. The solid facts about the future hope of Christians are a powerful motivation for constant faith and costly love in the present. In other words, what you hope in, what you bank your life on, what you rest in affects how you live in the present. And Christian hope is a powerful motivator, a a motivational power, a love-empowering kind of force. This is hope. The the word hope that Paul uses for is not the the way that we might use it in the sense of, man, I hope that I can have nachos today for lunch. I do hope that. I love nachos. It's not the kind of hope that we can say when we were back before March Madness and said, I hope that my bracket is not destroyed in the tournament. Of course it was. I did terrible. It's not the kind of hope that Seattleites and Mariner fans for ages have been praying. I hope this is the year. Every year we say that, and it's, it's disappointing every single year. In other words, it's not an anticipation. It's not an expectation like it's in doubt. Christian hope is not like that. The hope of heaven it hasn't yet been fully experienced yet, but it's going to happen because it's rooted in what Jesus has done. The believer's hope then is the basis for this faith in God's promises for this life. John Calvin describes hope will never be inactive in us so as not to produce love. He says this, for it is of necessity that the man who is fully persuaded that a treasure of life is laid up for him in heaven will aspire thither 
How many times have you heard that word used today? Thither. Looking down upon this world, meditation, however, upon the heavenly life stirs up our affections both to the worship of God and to the exercises of love. So the Christian hope, I think Paul is saying here, the Christian hope, it shapes, it affects. The hope of the gospel, the hope of Christ empowers faith and love. Paul says that this hope you heard of before, it's in the word of truth, the gospel. That it's come to you, this powerful message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's, it's come to you, it's bearing fruit all over the world, just as it has in you since the day you heard it. It's a message of the grace of God. And then I thought, as I was studying, well, how does that really work? How does hope empower love? And I started to do some reflection upon my, my own life. How does this play out? How does hope in Christ, how does Christian hope empower? How is this the basis for love for other Christian brothers and sisters? And I mentioned a song earlier by Beyonce, Crazy in Love, and I think she actually hits on this in, in her song. If you're not familiar with the song, it's, it's a song by Beyonce called Crazy in Love, and, and these are some of the lyrics. She, she sings, got me looking, I'm not gonna sing it, I'm just gonna read it. Got me looking so crazy right now, your love's got me looking so crazy right now. Got me looking so crazy right now. Your touch got me looking so crazy right now. Got me hoping you'll page me right now. Your kiss got me hoping you'll save me right now. Looking so crazy. Your love's got me looking. Got me looking so crazy in love. What'd she say there? Got me hoping you'll save me right now. Got so crazy in love. Beyonce is singing about hope. I hope that you'll save me. The, the touch, the kiss, the embrace. I have this unquenchable desire and I'm in need of salvation and I need you to save me from this hell of desire, of not being able to have this desire satisfied. I'm hoping you'll contact me, you'll save me. I had a similar feeling as this when I first met my wife, Stephanie. I was 16, she was 15. And I thought that I loved her. <laughs> I thought it was love at first sight. I had these immense feelings. I was always thinking about her. We, we communicated on this thing back in the day that was called MySpace. And MySpace had this little icon that would say, online now. And I just waited for that little icon to say, online now, so I could chat with her. I couldn't stop thinking about her. And, and there was an innocence, I think, to this love, but there was also a sense of, of lust. And as I've learned and I'm growing to learn what love is, I've heard someone helpfully describe, lust is, what can you do for me? And love is, what can I do for you? Now I was thinking back, I was convinced more and more that when I fell in love, and, and as I've done premarital counseling and marital counseling as in pastoral ministry, I'm more convinced that when people say they, they have fallen in love, it's oftentimes fallen in lust. What's really happening is falling in lust. And over time, <laughs> as a couple grows in age and experience, they actually begin to learn to love one another. As those feelings wait, as that kind of overwhelming desire goes away, you, you really do begin to learn how to love one another. I've seen this in, in first-time parents with their children and kind of, they have kids hoping that, you know, the marriage isn't exactly what we desired. If I have kids, then I'll be happy. <laughs> and you have kids who are like, nope, that's not working out. See, parents get so frustrated and bitter towards their, their children. And looking back at my relationship, I was hoping for companionship. I didn't have the emotional awareness or understanding, the self-understanding to, 
to give words to this, but looking back, I see that I was hoping for companionship. I was hoping for acceptance. I was hoping for intimacy. I was hoping for sexual fulfillment. I was hoping for belonging, and Stephanie is, is who I put my hope in. And there's a sense in which I loved my wife when I met her back in 2008, but there's a greater sense that now I love her more now than I ever did before. And I'm learning to love her. And when the infatuation fades, when the falling in love, the journey of hope to love begins. Because when your hope fails you, it leads to a, a despair, frustration. For example, if you come into a church and your hope is for deeper friendship, your hope is in what can I get out of this church, you'll be disappointed. Because the hope is not solid. Relationships are fluid, are, we're permeable, we're, we change. If two people become friends about, and they, they're in it for what can I get out of this relationship, they'll constantly be disappointed and frustrated and, and there'll be opportunities for bitterness. But if two people come into a friendship, into a relationship saying, my hope is in Christ, my conviction is if, if the hope is in Christ together, then they are actually truly freed to love one another. It's not about what they get out of it. They've received, they're, they're by faith received what, what Christ has done for them and they can truly start to love the other. When you hope in Christ, you are freed to truly love. You are free to love freely and, and freed in this hope because your hope isn't in what that person is gonna provide for you. Your hope isn't in what you can get out of them. Your hope isn't in something that can be taken away. It's not in something that's secure. It's not about what you can do for me. You're believing, you're receiving the benefits of Jesus and the presence of Jesus and the promises of Jesus and you're able to ask and to posture yourself, what can I do for you? That's what Paul is saying, I believe, when he's talking about the reason for the faith and love being rooted is because of this hope. Paul is saying, I've heard of your public love and this love springs forth from the root of hope and love is the fruit of that hope. So we've seen now the fruit of hope, it's faith and love. Let's consider what might be at the root of hope. What is Paul grounding the hope of the Colossians in? Here's what Paul prays. He hears of their faith and love and he thanks God and he prays that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. And Paul prays that they would be strengthened with all power. He doesn't pray, I pray that you'd be filled with all knowledge of his will, that you might be superior students, that you might be self-righteous and know-it-alls. He's saying filled with the knowledge of his will for, for what? What's the outflow of this knowledge? Look at verse 10. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to the glorious, to his glorious might. In other words, being filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding leads to a life. The Jewish thought kind of walking was attributed to behavior, a conduct of life, a life that's increasing in the knowledge of God, your behavior, your actions, it's, it's worked out. This wisdom is, is changing. It's calling you to, to look and reflect more of the character of Christ. So to be filled with the knowledge of his will, it includes a life that's increasing in the knowledge of God. It means growing in humility. It means those who know the will of God, they seek to increase their knowledge of God. It's not like we can ever know it, know it all. It's like the more we learn, the less we feel like we know because we wanna learn more as we learn. It's this paradoxical dynamic of those who 
know God, want to continue to increase in knowing him more. And Paul prays, I pray that you're filled with the knowledge of his will, that you be strengthened with all power and all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks. In other words, Paul prays that the Colossians would understand, would seek wisdom in what Christ has done for them. This is the dynamic of Christian change, of heart transformation. This is what Paul does in his letter. It's because of what Christ has done that we live out of these realities. Believers live out who they already are in Christ. Paul teaches and reminds and encourages and says, remember, in a sense, remember who you are, be who you are, live out of what Christ has accomplished. Paul knows that it's by grace. It's the work of God to grant understanding. It's the knowledge of his will, he prays. And he prays that their life would reflect, that it would be so gospel-saturated, so gospel-motivated, that their lives would align with with the very implications and applications of the gospel, increase faith in God and increasing love for those who are in Christ. This is the work of grace. And what is their hope in? Paul prays there and, and, and writes, he reminds us what Jesus has accomplished. Look at, look at verse 12. Giving thanks to God the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints, inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And did you notice the tense that Paul's writing in here? It's past tense. It's already been done. There's no uncertainty of it's it's going to happen. He says, you have been enabled. You have been rescued. You have been transferred. And in him, you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the Christian hope is it's something that's already happened because of what Jesus has done. It's true, it's objective, it's laid up in heaven. And what is most true and precious and valuable can't be taken from the life of a Christian because Jesus has accomplished it. Because this hope has been laid up, it's secure in Christ, there's no person, there's no spiritual being, no one can steal, can rob, can take this away, there's no kind of insecure foundation, it's not you know, flexible or changing, it's, it's accomplished. And Paul prays, I pray that God would grant you understanding about this, that you have been qualified. No one can take that away. You have already been delivered and transferred into the kingdom. And since you're in the kingdom, live out of these kingdom values. In other words, you obey because you already have been accepted, not the other way around. You behave because you already belong. Paul prays as God provides the glorious might of God would provide wisdom, knowledge, and power to understand what God has already done. In other words, you don't graduate from this gospel of hope. The gospel of grace is what continually produces this change and this deepening and this maturity. So we don't move on from the gospel. We don't graduate from the gospel. We move deeper into it. And we pray that God would allow the implications and the applications of the gospel to be more functional in our life to transform us from the inside out. And when we consider, I think, where we were before Christ, we were in the domain of darkness. We were unqualified in the kingdom. We were cut off from the inheritance of the saints. We were without hope. We were unable to make ourselves worthy. We were unclean. We weren't able to pay the debt that we owed. And and yet by faith, all these realities that Paul has written, we receive them. What the Father has done, he... We remind ourselves that that's what he has done. He has enabled us to share in the the saints' inheritance. 
He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. Our hope is not in what we do. Our hope is in what God has already done. And the root of this hope, the foundation of this hope is is already secured by Christ. It's rooted in the very gospel of Jesus Christ. That forgiveness, redemption, new life is freely offered by grace through faith. And with this root firmly planted in the gospel, I pray for for, for my own life and for the hallowed church this morning, that as we root ourselves in the hope of the gospel, that this hope would bear fruit in our life in love for those in this church and faith in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is living and active. Thank you that we can never plumb the depths of, of your word to us, that we can, that your word is sufficient for us to know all things of, of life and salvation, but we can spend a lifetime enjoying it, learning about it, studying it. I thank you for the Hallows Church that has been planted in the Seattle and particularly in this Wallingford neighborhood of Seattle, that you would use this church to proclaim and to demonstrate the difference that the gospel makes, the difference that the hope of the gospel makes in our life. Father, thank you that even when our hope can stray into into things that are not rooted in you, you you gently call us back and you remind us of of the goodness of your promises and and your word. I, I pray that you would use this church to encourage one another to grow in faith in Jesus and love for, for one another. Thank you that you've given me the opportunity to to stand here this morning and to share. Pray that you might use the words spoken to encourage your saints, to edify your body, and that this church might be built up towards love and good deeds. We love you, Jesus. We thank you so much. We we could never do, and and we, we admit that apart from you, we can do nothing, that we are dependent upon you, Jesus. You saved us. You sustain us. You will see us through. So, Jesus, we... We humble ourselves before you and we thank you. Would you help us to understand and to experience more what what this hope of the gospel is, that it would be experienced in our hearts and that it would affect the way that we live for your glory and for the flourishing of those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every week at the Hallows Church, you partake in something that's called the Lord's Supper, communion. And as you take communion, you're reminded of the, in a kind of a tangible, physical way, the realities of the gospel, that Christ's body was broken on the cross, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And I pray that as we take communion together and that we would be reminded of these promises, that we would, it would provide us a time to reflect and to look back and to Thank Jesus for what he has done on the cross. But it'd also be a time where we look forward to the time when, when the hope that, it, that we are trusting in by faith, we will see face to face. We're gonna be with Jesus. And all of God's people are gonna be together, every tribe and nation or tongue, gonna be gathered together in, in the wedding feast of the Lamb. 
And this, this small little cracker and this cup is kind of like an appetizer to that meal, a foretaste of what is coming. So we look forward and pray, Jesus, Jesus, come. And until you come, we pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that your kingdom would come, that we would reflect the kingdom that is coming, the life that Jesus has secured for us right now in the present, that it would be reflected and demonstrated in this church. So we take communion together, George? Open? Okay. Well, as you guys take communion, uh, respond in worship as we have more, more songs to sing and that we would praise Jesus and worship Jesus together.